morning. Good to see everybody here today. Glad uh, for those of you that are our guests today. Uh, we hope, as always, that what you experience among us is genuine, and what you see is, is what God sees, and that is his people. And we also, you know, if you have wandered around and looking for that church that is genuinely striving to be the church that you read about in the Bible, we hope that you see that in us. We hope that you hear in the lesson that everything that we say is, is, is drawn from Scripture, um, that we're not coming to you with our own opinions or uh, with views that are either popular or unpopular with the times that we live in, but just coming to you and bringing you the message from the Word of God. Hope that the worship we've partaken in so far with the singing and the Lord's Supper, you recognize that all we're trying to do is just humbly be the servants of the Lord and just trying to worship God in response to what he's revealed to us in his book, the Bible. And we hope that that appeals to you. This is a place to call home, a place to call your church home, a place uh, where your church family is and where we come together to be in the presence of our God and Father and our Lord, our brother in humanity, Jesus, who became a man and died for us. We want you to be a part of this family here. In the past weeks, we've been pursuing this theme, uh, 2017's theme, by talking about the church as a house of healing. And today's lesson is building upon that. You know, I've got some scars that I'm, I could show you some of them. Um, I've got one on my shin. Uh, one time when I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, 10, 11 years old or something, went to step up on my concrete front porch, missed the step, and hit it with my shin. Ever done that? Some of the most intense pain I've ever felt in my life. <laughs> Thank God it's over. I do still have a, a little pit there in my shin where if you even fill down the bone, it dents in a little bit right there. Huh, that's something. Anyway, at least it still works. Thank God for that. But I got that scar. Got a scar on my wrist. I was doing sheet metal work uh, in my early adulthood years and a big 200-pound piece of steel on the table. We were machining it and what have you. It started to slip off the table, and I made a rookie mistake. Don't try to catch a 200-pound piece of steel as it falls off the table. It will cut you open. And it laid me open right close to my wrist. I was scared to death. Thank God it didn't get uh, the artery there. Um, we just patched that thing back up, but I still got a scar. Uh, used to frame houses. Yeah, I've done a lot of different kinds of work in my time, building houses and big houses out in uh, Brentwood and Franklin area. And um, I was uh, passing up some boards to some guys that were up on the, the ceiling joists and uh, handed this big beam off to one of the fellas. And I turned like this to go ahead back and get the next thing. But they dropped that piece of wood right on my elbow. That hurt. It also left a scar, bled and bled and bled. But thank God it, it healed. I, I've got some others here or there. Some of you have got some... Uh, got some real scars to brag about those of you had major surgeries or uh, some of you that have been wounded in, in some even more serious ways than I have but you, you know a scar may not be the most attractive thing in the world depends on what business you're in you know if you're a boxer I mean if you got a scar next to your eye or something that might go with the territory but depending on what business you're in you know it may not be the best looking thing in the world uh, you know well-known models will insure their faces and body parts for 
thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars, you know, because one scar could cause a major problem for them. But, but you know, one of the reasons why we're okay with the scar is because even though the scar reminds us of a wound, of some pain, of some damage that took place in the past, one thing is always certain if there's a scar, and that is it healed, right? And so we've brought up the fact in this series so far as we've been talking about the church as a house of healing that no, not in the physical sense, although that is true for many of us, but that in the spiritual sense, in the emotional sense, all of us bear scars from things that we have experienced in the past. Now, some of us, it's right to say, have scars. We have emotional things we've gone through, spiritual experiences that we've gone through, that the Lord has healed, that we've healed from, and they have scarred over. We remember what we went through, but we learned from it, and it's better. On the other hand, some of us have open wounds. If you're still dealing with something in your past, emotional or spiritual, that, that you haven't healed from, what you might call baggage, something that you continue to drag around with you and carry around with you, something that is weakening you, crippling you spiritually, holding you back, that's not a scar yet. It's still an open wound. In some cases, even among us here at church, just because someone comes to church doesn't mean we've all got it together. And in fact, I would think that the most mature disciples among us here at Laverne might be the first to admit we don't have it all together. But on a weekly basis, I don't know what's going on in everyone's life, but I will tell you what I know about humanity is that there are people that come in this auditorium week by week that on the spiritual level, emotional level, don't just have an open wound, but they have an artery that is hemorrhaging, whatever that word is. You know what I'm talking about, all right? Uh, and so hopefully that makes the point that we're trying to make here. I want you to keep this in mind because this is, this is what this lesson is about today. Because we, we talked about last week that this church is a house of healers. That each one of us as Christians are called into a ministry of healing. I'm not talking about miraculous faith healing. That, that's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about we're soul healers, spirit healers, emotional healers, people that carry the gospel out in the world. We carry 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the comfort with which we've been comforted by Christ, and we carry that out into the world, into our families, workplaces, schools, and the communities, and we heal people as God has healed us in Christ. But we're wounded healers, sometimes with, with scars because those wounds have healed. Others of us still desperately need healing because now, there's still open wounds. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, I want you to notice the words of our Lord Jesus as he talks about John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Well-known, and kid that has grown up in Bible school knows who John the Baptist or John the baptizer is. This is what Jesus says about that man. And this, if Jesus says this about somebody, this is significant. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Thousands of years of the earth's history that preceded the moment Jesus spoke those words, John the Baptist was the cream of the crop. Nobody better. As good or a better man than anybody who had lived before him. And when Jesus says that about you, that means something. Yet, notice the second part of the statement. 
yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Kingdom of heaven meaning the gospel community, Christian community, the church, the followers of Jesus from the cross and the resurrection on. The least of us are greater than he. How can that be the case? We're, we're going to get to that. But the first part of the passage there, nobody greater than him, and yet look at what John the Baptist said about Jesus, Mark 1, verse 7. And he preached, that's John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. How much so, John? Notice how he finishes. The strap of whose sandal, sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, if I were to uh, decide that I was something great, and my shoe, you know, and, and, I, and I'm taking my shoes off, and I'm too good to either bend, even bend over and untie my shoe, and I say to you, come, untie my shoe. That'd be a pretty haughty thing. That's not exactly what John is talking about, though. You see, in that world where people walked practically everywhere, and most folks didn't have horseback or muleback or donkeyback transportation, sometimes they did, sometimes they had wagons, but the average person walked, and they had sandals. And so it became a matter of social custom that when you came into someone, someone came into your house, a guest in your house, the first step of showing them hospitality was you would provide water to wash their feet. All the dirt and grime of walking around in sandals. And, and it was the job of the lowest member of the household. If the household had servants, the lowest servant of the household was the one tasked with washing feet. And so when you understand this statement from a, the cultural context into which it was spoken, John is saying, he is so great that I am not even worthy to do the service of the lowest servant in the house toward him. That's how great Jesus is. And I want you to look into your heart this morning and say, have I lived a life to this point in time that if Jesus were to say about me, Oh, truly I say to you, no one who has ever been born greater than him. Would, would Jesus say that about you? Ladies, if Jesus were to give his assessment of how you've really lived, I'm not talking about how he sees you through grace. I'm talking an assessment of who you are. Would Jesus say that woman, nobody who's ever lived is greater than her? I'm a, let's be honest, brothers and sisters. Most of us, don't think Jesus would probably say that. I don't think he'd say that about me. I mean, I wish he, I wish he could. I wish he could. But I don't think he can. So if John, a greater man than me, oh, if I'm least in the kingdom of heaven, there's a sense in which I'm greater than him. I get that. I'll explain that. But literally, though, John is a better man than me. So if John is not worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandal to do the task of the lowest servant in the house. How ought I to see myself in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ? Please, meditate on that. Let that put things in perspective. I want to ask you a question this morning. What do you see first when you look at another person? the first thing that you're looking for, typically, when you begin to analyze the quality, the value, the nature, what you think about, your point of view, your opinion of another human being. When you look at them the first time, what is it that you think about? What do you think about yourself? 
Are your scars, your own wounds, are they helpful to you or are they hurtful to you? You know, I, I want us to, to think about the fact, I've been told this all of my life, I, I, I don't hesitate to tell you that for a great deal of my young life, my adolescence and adulthood, I did not live a faithful Christian life. And some of you that know me well know the details of that, others of you don't know the details of that, and that's not the point for me to go into at this point in time right now. But folks that do know the things that I did, the, the trouble that I got into, and all, just all of that period of my life often tell me, and I understand, and I don't disagree, but they say because of the things that you've experienced and gone through that puts you in a position to be able to minister to other people in maybe a way that they can relate to. Maybe you can have a greater impact on them than someone who hasn't experienced that, that can. Okay, I've wrestled with that all my adult life because while I understand what's being said, I'm not sure that's biblical. I'm just not sure it is. Who has done the most good that has ever lived? one who never sinned at all. Are you, are you letting this sink in? All right, keep that in mind. What do you see first when you're on the inside of the church looking out? If you look out the people in the community around us, the unchurched folks in the community around us, what do you see? What do you see when you look at them and analyze them? Do you see, oh, look how terrible those people are? Man, they are just drunks, and they're sexually immoral, and they have filthy language, and man, the dirty jokes, and the things that entertain them, and all oh, the way they treat you in traffic, and we could go on and on and on and on. Is that what you see first? Is that what you think of as the person in the community out there in the world around you? Is that what you're seeing when you look at them? Uh, what about when you're on the inside looking around? When you're on the inside of the church, looking around at other folks in the church? What do you see first? Do you first look to see if that man wears a tie on the Lord's table? Is that the, is that the biggest deal to you? Do you look around to see if the folks around you, if they walk like you and talk like you and act like you and have the same opinions in you, have the same traditional ideas that you do? The decisions they make, if they're in leadership, do they make the decisions you want them to make, the decisions you would make? Folks in leadership. Do you look and see, well, brother so-and-so hadn't volunteered for the things that I lead, and therefore I don't really think much of them. <laughs> I do appreciate those that volunteer for stuff that I lead, by the way. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't love you. If you don't, it may not be your area of giftedness. But what, do you, what, do you see? what are you looking for? What are you looking for? Are you the standard that determines what a good, faithful member of the church is? Or uh, how, do you, how do you look? What about from the outside looking in? You know, today I, I, I'm sometimes irritated, I'll be honest, straightforward, irritated by the way some people in the community around us look in at the church. You know what I'm talking about. People tell you blatantly, I, don't, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. You know, I, I love God, but I'm not religious. Why? Because religion is what's bad with the world. You look in at the church, it's full of hypocrites. Well, we may have a few hypocrites here. Raise your hand if you're a hypocrite. <laughs> Had a couple of folks raise their hand. Okay, all right. I'll see you here in a few minutes on the front row. <laughs> but I don't think most of you are hypocrites. Oh, do we have, do we, does this auditorium represent weakness? Yeah. A lot of weakness here. Some of us got some wrong ideas about some things? Yes. Some of us got some wrong ideas about some things. Some of us, do we ever do things badly, though we meant well? 
all the time. You ever meant well to somebody wanting to try to minister to them and end up putting your foot in your mouth and just saying everything wrong? Yeah, of course. Many of us have done that. And so we get a little irritated about how they look in and see us. But there's another side of the coin, too. There are humbler people in the community around us that look in at the church and they see a standard they could never hope to imitate. They've been around some folks that maybe are really growing in, in Christ that are you know, growing in strength and, and really imitating Jesus well and they see the way they live and everything seems so clean, everything seems so wholesome. They never see them sinning the way that other people do in their life. They don't hear them use the language that they hear. And they get a little intimidated by that. And they think, how, how could I ever fit in with a group of people like that? And so uh, I'm asking this because obviously, obviously, the perception of all of us, no matter where we are, can be very badly skewed. We, we can absolutely misjudge as Christian people we can misjudge folks in the world around us all the time and cripple our abilities to reach out to them and effectively disciple them with the gospel of Jesus Christ as a church called to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace as Ephesians 4 teaches us to do our perception can be skewed all over the place we look across the auditorium and we find fault as people look into the church we know their perception is wildly inaccurate as to who we really are as a collective and what we're doing. There's a story, true story, in John chapter 9 of our Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry and in the city of Jerusalem he came upon a man born blind. He'd never seen anything in his life. And Jesus healed him. And that was the beginning of his problems. <laughs> that was the beginning of his problems. Because he had the poor sense of saying some awful good things about Jesus as a result of the fact that he had done something that no one from the foundation of the world had ever done before, and that is open the eyes of a man born blind. Blind as bad as he'd been, he had sense enough to recognize that said something about him. But you know, the chief priests and the Pharisees and Sadducees, scribes, rulers, the elite in Jerusalem didn't like Jesus. Their perception of him was terribly skewed. And they did not want anyone to promote Jesus or publicly confess their belief in him. But hey, this blind man, he was just dumb enough to do it. And I say that sarcastically. That's their point of view about things. And so he got into trouble. He got into trouble. But I want you to notice what Jesus said to him. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, that cast him out of the synagogue. They disfellowshipped him. They said, you're not welcome in the community of believers anymore because of what you're saying about Jesus. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? You know who the Son of Man is. You know who Jesus was talking about himself. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He said, he said whoever you tell me to believe in, that's who I believe in. That was that was clear, clear vision, clear understanding based upon what had happened to him. Second part of the passage, Jesus said to him, you have seen him? Mm. Four words in that passage that are powerful. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I envy that man. I envy him. I spend a lot of time, and I hope you do too, wondering, dreaming, of what it will be like the first time I see Jesus. 
Mine wrote a contemporary Christian song about that a few years ago that I think expresses it pretty well to me, if you know what I'm talking about. I don't know. And it blows my mind. I can't wait. I cannot wait. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Just as we've been doing today. Jesus had some further words to say, beginning in verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him, he <laughs> say this privately, okay? Some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things and said to him, Are we also blind? I can just hear the indignation, arrogance of these guys. And notice Jesus' answer, and brothers and sisters, this is what everything else we say in this lesson is about today. He said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, brothers and sisters, this is not about physical sight. That's not what the passage is about. It's about spiritual things. It's about recognizing the things that are eternal in nature, the things that matter about you most about sin, about righteousness, about guilt, about forgiveness, about justice, and about grace. That's what this whole concept, context is about. And I think we can draw a lesson from this, and that is you will see what you're looking for. What didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek, and ye shall find, as the old King James says. In other words, you'll find what you're looking for. If you're looking for self-righteousness, if you decide, I, I must for my self-esteem's sake, I must convince myself that I am truly a good and worthy and noble person. You will justify every action that you commit. Every word you will say, you will have an excuse for, and no one will be able to penetrate the shell. Spiritually, you will blind yourself to reality. And that's what those Pharisees had done. They saw what they wanted to see. They wanted to see themselves as practically perfect in every way. And therefore, they bought mirrors that would show them only that. And I mean that in their minds. That's all they could see. The blind man had never seen the things physically that the Pharisees had seen. He was looking for help. All his life, that's all he'd been doing, was looking for help. He found it. So which crowd are you in today? Are you looking to justify yourself? Or are you looking for help? Because that will say everything about what you see with your mind's eye, with the eyes of the Spirit. And so in John chapter 9, Jesus uses sight to expose how we judge ourselves and others. And there are other passages in the Bible, like uh, the parables in Luke 15, in which Jesus contrasts what he was looking for and what he was seeing with what the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests, all the elite leaders in Israel were looking for and ultimately what they were finding and what they were seeing. It, people kind of misunderstand sometimes the purpose of those parables. That's all the purpose is. It's a contrast between why they saw what they saw and why Jesus saw what he saw. And he uses examples. The chief priests were not looking for redeemable people. They were not looking into the masses of folks that had been deceived by Satan and were being torn to pieces by the sin in their lives in the hope of imparting some spiritual blessing to them that they might be healed. That's not what they cared to do. And so they never saw that in the masses. All they saw were people who they considered to be cursed, rejected by God, 
folks that they were not to stain themselves by being around. And so they criticized Jesus because Jesus ate with sinners, publicans, prostitutes, the people who were the dregs of that society. They looked at Jesus as if he tainted himself because he associated with those people. But Jesus said, and I'm paraphrasing, you wicked people, if you lose a coin, you'll turn your house upside down to fight it. Something of so little value. Shepherds, owners of flocks, if you lose one sheep, but you still got 99. I wouldn't know what to do with 99 sheep. If I lost one, I'd be like, oh, a little less work I got to do, you know. <laughs> but folks whose worth, you know, whose value was built upon that, he said, you lose one, you still got 99. You lose one, you'll search high and low. You'll go into the wilderness until you find it, and then you rejoice. You got sense enough to do that. Parable of the prodigal son. The son who sold his inheritance and prodigal sinful living. But what was his father looking for in that parable? Was he looking to see all the evil that his son had done and to judge him accordingly? No, he was looking for his redemption. He was hoping that his life could be saved, that his soul could be saved. And those parables were telling Jesus' detractors why he was doing what he was doing. It had everything to do with what he was looking for. He was looking for people who had been oppressed and deceived by Satan in the hope of saving them. And the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with that. And so his point of view had everything to do with what he saw in people. He didn't define them about their past, about what they had done, or even in that moment what they were doing. He defined them by the promise that he could see in them of doing better. We're called to be his disciples, brothers and sisters, and to see ourselves and to see each other and to see the lost in the world around us in exactly that way. And we've got to see people the way that Jesus sees people. And that's what created the scenario of the Samaritans in John chapter 4. When the disciples saw a Samaritan woman by the well in the city of Sychar, they had no interest in her whatsoever. They were surprised that he was talking to A, a Samaritan. Those were people the Jews were racist against, by the way. And the Samaritans returned the favor, right? And not only so, but religiously speaking, they had debates. There was a Samaritan Pentateuch and Samaritan practices of worshiping God that were wrong, whereas the Jews were right on what they were doing. And so there was a, a legitimate religious debate. And so most of the Jews thought the Samaritans were trash, that weren't worth saving, and they definitely wanted no dealings with them. So here Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, and not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. The disciples don't even get that. Jesus, of course, leads her to faith in him, to salvation, because he wasn't looking for the things that his culture told him he ought to be looking for. He was looking for redeemable people, folks who could be saved, that could do better than they'd done before. And as a result, not only was that woman by the well in, in Sychar and Samaria healed of her sin afflictions, which had been many, 
but the whole town was brought to Christ. And at the end, it wasn't just because this sinful woman had been changed. Listen, it wasn't just because this woman that everybody in town knew had a lot of baggage had turned her life around that they said, oh, I can relate to her now because I understand she's been where I have been. No, that's not what it was. It was contact with her, seeing the change in her life that brought them to Jesus. And at the end of the account, what was it that they said convinced them? Not her word, but because they had met Jesus himself. That's why they were converted, brothers and sisters. And that is absolutely the heart of everything that we're called to do and be as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about me and what I have experienced. It is not about me and what I've done. It is not about me and my failures that makes me able to relate to another human being. It is the way that I look at Jesus and understand myself in comparison to him. That's what enables me to minister to those in the world that need the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it, man. That's all of it. Oh, that I had not sinned in the ways that I sinned. God redeemed me and I'll show the scars. I'll use them if I can reach somebody. But the person that has reached more people than anyone else in history, the only scars he had were my fault, not his. And that's the power of the gospel. So what are you looking for? Understanding everything I've said this morning leads us to what Jesus says is the second greatest commandment. The first is love God. The second Love your neighbor as yourself. I put all these scriptures, every time in scripture that specific phrase is given to us to show us that this is a big deal. It's not just something said one time in an isolated passage, both Old and New Testaments. This is continuing to be something very important to God. This is number one rule in how we relate to other people. We love our neighbors as ourselves. Why did the Pharisees have such a problem loving their neighbors? Because of the way they saw themselves. The person that has been enlightened, who has had the scales removed from our spiritual eyes so that we see Jesus for what he is, are able to see ourselves for what we are, and then we're able to operate under the rule of compassion. Then I'm, I'm able to see in others their potential. I'm able to see people who have been abused by Satan and misled. And it's not so, that, so much that they're just the worst people that ever lived. They're victims in a sense. And I, I then can relate to them in that way with compassion because I too realize that there would be nothing good in me if I had not come to Christ. Nothing good in me were it not for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing good in you except the Jesus that is in you. And so when you understand that, how can you be self-righteous? How can you be arrogant? How can you mistreat other human beings? How can you do it? When, when the blindness is removed, you can't do that. But brothers and sisters, I think that there might be even a more important twist upon this commandment because Jesus didn't just leave it there. He said, I got something new for you. Call it the new commandment. He says, I want you to love each other, not just love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to love each other as I have loved you. You see, that's a whole new way of seeing people. Nobody had ever anticipated that. None of the great scholars of the Law of Moses or the Prophets or the Psalms and the rest of the wisdom literature, everything that had been written before the birth of Christ, none of them had really anticipated this commandment, what would become ours because of the success of Jesus' ministry of sacrificing himself. You see, God has given us something that John the Baptist could not have imagined. 
great a man as he was, God has given us something that he never got to see. He never got to see the Messiah coming in his kingdom in a way that he never even anticipated when he was beheaded because of his faithfulness. He died in faith. But he didn't get to see what you and I have seen with the eyes of our minds. He never saw the Son of Man lifted up on the cross of Calvary to give his life to save humanity. He never saw it. He never wept with the rest of the disciples cowering in fear while his body lay in the grave. He never saw it. He was not with first the women and then Peter and John and the rest of the disciples and Paul says the 500 brethren at once and finally him in 1 Corinthians 15. He wasn't with them to see Jesus risen from the dead. John never saw those things. But the least of us in here, we know it. And therefore, our ability to minister far exceeds that of one of the greatest men who has ever lived. Now you let that sink in. You just let that change the way you see yourself and the way that you see other people. What are you looking for? What do you see? From the inside out now, what do we see? Yesterday at our outreach event at Old Timers Day, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of people passed by our booth. Undoubtedly, some of them are faithful Christians. I'm glad of that. But I saw an awful lot of people that I know, whether I know them or not, a lot of those people did not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Does that mean I'm better than them and I should look down on them and I should withdraw from them and scorn them and make fun of them and exalt myself at the expense of them? No. I got to love like Christ loved me because when I was just like them, he died for me. His scars are because of me. His wounds, the only ones he's got, were given to save me. When I look from the inside of the church looking around, and I look at all of you, when you look at me, when we look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we see? Potential folks that might want to do a ministry different than we might want to do it? Folks that think the direction of the church should be a little different than we think it ought to be. People that have a different opinion on a passage than we've got and we want to argue with them about it. People that we're just certain are hypocrites because if they weren't hypocrites, they'd act more like me. You hypocrite. If that's you, man, you're a hypocrite. Or do we see other people Maybe where we are on the road to spiritual maturity may be far behind us, may be well ahead of us, but do we see people who've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ that he loves and in whose lives he's working? That's who we need to see. And you know what? I am absolutely confident as we continue to get our minds wrapped around this more and more fully, each of us individually and as a church, that when folks on the outside look in, they're going to see something different than they see in a lot of other churches. They're going to see something that is going to refute that popular idea today that Jesus is good and church is bad. They're going to say, I want to be there. Why have I wasted so much of my time? Why? What do you see at the foot of the cross looking up? Because, brothers and sisters, that's the question of the hour. 
And you stand there at the foot of Jesus' cross in your mind's eye and look up, what do you see? I appreciate, Brother Rooster, the way you explained and sang that song. Because what he said is absolutely right. My sins nailed him there. Your sins nailed him there. He'd never done anything wrong. Not a thing. Not one sin. He didn't deserve it. I deserved worse. And yet he gave his life for me. And it is the only good thing about me that there is. And that's true for you as well. It's the only good thing about you. Brothers and sisters, we've got to get our mind wrapped around that. That's got to be our motivation for who we are and for everything we do. And so I come back to this question. Are your scars helpful or are they hurtful? You know, it depends on how you look at it, I guess. Wish I didn't have them. Wish I'd never done the things that I've done that put Jesus on the cross. But if I can use them, I will. But there's only one reason why I can. It's because they're healed. Because he healed me. It's because the way that God has forgiven me points to his righteousness, not to mine. It points to what he can do in everyone's life who will come to him in faith and in submission. That's why there's the ability to minister to the things we've experienced. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's our Lord, and that's our Savior. Who was the apostle to the Gentiles? The apostle Paul. He was the person based upon his past experience who could relate to the Gentiles the least. I'm not going to say anything more about it except what he said. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Brothers and sisters, we're wounded healers, every one of us. Let's use what the Lord has done for us as salve for our eyes to help us to see ourselves and others the way the Lord sees them. And let's get busy trying to bring them to salvation in Christ. Are you subject to the invitation this morning? Come as together we stand and sing.